0: So we are looking at uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Anna read for us. Thank you so much for that. Um, in many of Jesus' parables and encounters we read about in the Bible, we have an example of a be-like and a don't-be-like. Someone do what they do, don't do what they do. You know, for example, uh, well, I won't give a specific example. One was an X, one was a Y. They both did this. Be like the X, don't be like the Y. And the reason I haven't given any specific examples is because we're going to play a bit of a game together. Uh, Because if you have much experience of church or even Sunday school, I think you can probably actually guess who the be-like is and who the don't be-like is without actually hearing the story. You just need to know who's in it. So we're going to try that now. Uh, Yes, I am asking for your participation. I'm going to give you two people, and you're going to shout out. Who should we be like? Who should we be like? (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Someone say Jesus. That's right. <laughs> that's <good. laughs> well, sometimes Jesus stories weren't about Jesus. So, Jesus tells the story of a beggar and a rich man. Who should we be like? Begar. The beggar. That's right. Jesus sees a poor widow and rich people. Who should we be like? Poor widow. Yes, perfect. The poor widow. Uh, a priest or a foreigner. The foreigner. Chief priests or tax collectors and prostitutes? <laughs> prostitutes. Prostitutes. <laughs> tax collectors and prostitutes. <laughs> I appreciate that some people are really quick on the prostitutes there. <laughs> um, how about a Pharisee or a sinful woman? Sinful woman. Pharisee or a tax collector? A tax collector. That's right. A sinful woman and a tax collector. So as we look at this passage, we have some expectations. We have some biases Tax collectors, pitiable outcasts, who would just open their hearts if they were given the chance. Pharisees, stuck-up religious hypocrites, oppressing the common folk with unattainable standards of righteousness. Tax collectors, team Jesus, yes. (laughs) Pharisees, enemies of Jesus. So when Jesus in this passage says the Pharisee did not go home justified, we are entirely unsurprised. Of course he didn't. He's a Pharisee which probably means he's full of greed and wickedness. He neglects justice and the love of God. He delights in the status and recognition of his station. We read about these earlier this year in Luke 11. After all, woe to you Pharisees, said Jesus. But the people Jesus is talking to in this passage don't have that context. They don't have the New Testament laid out before them. They don't have our biases. They don't have our experience of church or Sunday school. They don't have our low view of Pharisees. They don't have a high-ish view of tax collectors. To the people Jesus is talking to, the Pharisee is a paragon of righteousness. And a tax collector is a despicable villain. What Jesus says here is more like going to (laughs) Comic-Con. Thanks, Josh. (laughs) Going to Comic-Con and saying, Captain America and Red Skull went to the temple to pray. And Red Skull alone went home justified. (laughs) Obi-Wan Kenobi and the Emperor went up to the temple to pray. And the Emperor alone went home justified. Yeah. (laughs) There we go. More people get that one. (laughs) (laughs) So Jesus is making two important points here. One, even the best of us sin. And two, even the worst of us can be justified. Even the best of us sin. And even the worst of us can be justified. We'll get into why the tax collector represents the worst of us later. But let's start with the best of us. In verse 9 we read that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in their own righteousness. Treating others with contempt. Jesus isn't necessarily talking to Pharisees. We do associate them with that. But the Bible usually singles them out when he is. Jesus is talking to people who think very highly of themselves and have a sense of being in good standing before God because of how well they behave, how good they are at following the rules. He's trying trying to address a sense of self-righteousness in his audience and to do that, he's using the example of the most righteous person imaginable to them, a Pharisee. At the time, Pharisees were actually highly regarded by the common people. I'll give you a little context. In the time of Jesus, there are a few main sects of Judaism. Uh, The main ones we see in the New Testament are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were of the highest classes in Jewish society, often wealthy elites, uh, often priests. They had control of the temple. The high priest was a Sadducee. They had a very narrow view of scripture and applied rules strictly and were not well liked by the common people. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, were well liked weren't especially wealthy, weren't quite as elite as the Sadducees. Their interpretation of Old Testament law was often quite appealing. They valued knowledge of Scripture above social class and they held on tightly to Jewish tradition and culture even as Judea was occupied by the Roman Empire. No one was more respected for their righteousness. Pharisee was a pillar of goodness in Judean society. I may probably be painting with two broad a brush to say everyone loved the Pharisees, but these people, these self-righteous people Jesus is talking to now, certainly held them in high regard. And so the Pharisee prays in verse 11, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The Pharisee is giving examples of bad things he has not done. The law is mostly do-nots, and the Pharisee has not done those do-nots. So he must be righteous, right? On top of that, verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Yes, there are some things required of me to be good as well, and I do those too. I don't do the do-nots, and I do the do's. I'm righteous. Thank you, Lord. Sovereign God, in your kindness, making me Righteous. But how good is he? This is a fictional Pharisee. He doesn't have skeletons in his closet for us to uncover because Jesus is just telling a story. But he doesn't understand righteousness. This Pharisee, one, does what he should not, and two, doesn't do what he should. Let's start with the first one. The Pharisee does what he should not. Much of Jesus' teaching was to clarify the law. Here's what you've heard. Here's what you think it means. Here's what it actually means. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. A little later on, you've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, Has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so the Pharisee believes he is righteous because he's never actually killed someone. He's never actually cheated on his wife. But he's certainly broken the law in his heart. Not because he's a Pharisee, but because who hasn't? Jesus is clarifying the law and showing that it is far stricter than people thought. He's showing that it is infeasible to earn eternal life by our own righteousness. We cannot be good enough. From earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the most righteous people you know, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, the Pharisee does not do what he should. Years before Jesus' ministry, probably before he was even born, a Pharisee named Hillel the Elder famously said, What is hateful to you, do not to your neighbour. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary thereof. Go and learn it. What is hateful to you, do not to your neighbour. We've heard something like this before, right? Essentially, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Sounds kind of like the golden rule. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Both claim to fulfill the Old Testament law. But notice the difference? The The Pharisaical saying is passively not bad. Do not do bad to others. What Jesus is saying is actively good. Do, do good. So even if the Pharisee is successfully not doing bad to others, is he always doing good? James summarizes this another way in James 4, 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Like the pharisee we all do what we should not and we all fail to do what we should all of us whether we are religious scholars like the, like the pharisees charitable givers tireless activists mentors teachers hosts whether we are the gentlest souls or the fiercest protectors of the oppressed we all sin again and again and again We cannot stand by our own goodness before God. As Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even the best of us. This Pharisee believes himself to be close to God by his own righteousness. No, not by a long shot. And then he even looks down on those who sin in more obvious ways as being beneath him. He has contempt for the tax collector, as if it means anything at all to be a little bit more righteous than someone else. If we're competing over who's the most righteous, while all being so far from actual righteousness, we are toddlers in a foot race, trying to see who can get into the Olympic relay team. (laughs) And the best of us, the fastest of, of us, will be turned away at the door. So the Pharisee, believing himself to be as good as it gets, goes home unchanged in the eyes of God. He believes himself just, justified, and he is not. Today, we don't have Pharisees anymore. Modern Judaism generally has roots in the Judaism of the Pharisees, while the other major sects faded out into history uh, pretty soon after Jesus' ministry, actually. But the point isn't about the religion. It's about the best of us, the most righteous. Jesus is telling his parable to those who think... That of Pharisees as the most righteous. But what if he was telling this parable to you? Who would he put instead of a Pharisee? Who do you put on a pedestal? Who best represents the qualities you most value in yourself? A church leader, a missionary, an activist, a pop culture icon, a living relative, a distant ancestor? Modern self righteousness comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Devotion to your children, the thoughtfulness of your giving, the influence of your work in your field, how well you mobilize people behind a good cause, the magnitude of your humility, how many people have come to know Jesus because of your witness. These are all great things. And these are all excuses to think ourselves superior to someone else. So take a moment. I'm going to give us a bit of awkward silence. To search your heart, ask God to help you see it, if it is there. Is Jesus pointing out a self-righteousness or a sense of superiority in you? Let's take a little bit. remember that even the best of us sin. Every single one of us. But there is great news in Jesus' second point that even the worst of us can be justified. Even the worst of us can be justified. I told you already that the Pharisee represents the best of us, and tax collector represents the worst. I'm not talking about the ATO. Tax collector was a little bit different in Jesus' time, so let's dig into that much of jesus ministry was in the roman province of judea this was formerly called the kingdom of judah in the old testament but at this time they had had no king for centuries and they were occupied by the roman empire the jews were the remnant of israel heirs of god's promises to abraham still living in the promised land waiting for a promised king to free them from the romans the tax collectors were collecting money for the Roman Empire. But they were Jews themselves. So we have Jews collecting money from Jews on behalf of the occupying Romans. You can see why some of their countrymen didn't like this, right? You're taking from us, from God's people, to give to the invaders? But it does get much worse than that. It was well known that tax collectors would take much more than they were supposed to and they'd keep the difference. It was actual daylight robbery, and they'd get away with it because Rome let them. They were clearly violating the golden rule, whether you take Jesus' version or the Pharisees. They were prospering off the harm that they were doing to others regularly, willfully. There were possible exceptions, tax collectors here and there who only took as much as they were supposed to. John the Baptist actually said it was okay to be a tax collector as long as you were not robbing people while you're doing it. But Jesus is telling a story, and just as his fictional Pharisee represents, or his fictional Pharisee can be assumed to be as righteous as his audience expects, the fictional tax collector can be assumed to be as unrighteous as they expect. A traitorous robber stealing from his fellow Jew under the protection of Roman muscle. So the tax collector isn't misunderstood. He isn't a good person with a bad reputation. He's just bad. And that's why he's in the parable. Because even the worst of us can be justified. Let's have a look at the text and see how that happens. In verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, will not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a famous prayer, sometimes called the sinner's prayer. This is where that comes from. It's so simple, right? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what was the outcome? Let's look at verse 14. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. He went down to his house justified. That's all it took. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He simply sees his need for God's mercy and asks for it. And there it is. Bam. Justification before God. If the worst person you know sees their need for God's mercy and seeks it in Jesus, they're justified. And if you and I, on our best behavior for the rest of our lives, do not see our need for mercy do not think we need it, then we are not justified. And if you are the worst person you know, you can be justified. (laughs) You can still have God's mercy. No one is good enough for it. Why should you be excluded from it? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the difference between the justified tax collector and the unjustified Pharisee. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because God is both just and merciful. And we will either face his justice, or we'll be welcomed into his mercy. And if we don't want his mercy, what else can we expect but justice? Justice for the murder and adultery in our hearts, justice for our greed and idolatry, Justice for when we do things we know we shouldn't. Justice for when we know what we ought to do and don't do it. Justice for when we respond to goodness with evil. Justice for when we respond to evil with evil. Justice for defying our creative purpose to love God and all people. It is not within our power to justify ourselves. But here is mercy, freely given. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. years ago I was the only Christian in the office I mean I am now too because I work alone (laughs) (laughs) back then I worked for other people and with other people and they were all either agnostic or atheists Um, it's quite cool actually because I I didn't particularly want this job and I didn't really see any opportunities to get the kind of job that I wanted and I prayed that God would help me put me where he wanted me to be and um, so I kind of like took the first entry-level position I was qualified for, got through the interview process. Uh, we had some chats about what I do outside of work. And it had come up that I was, um, that I was part of the music team um, at my other church. Um, when my boss called me to offer me the job, he said, it came up that you're a Christian. Obviously, we didn't have a problem with that. But you might have a problem with the fact that none of us are. There's going to be swearing. (laughs) Yeah. Rude jokes. If you can't handle that, you shouldn't take this job. I said, no, I'll be happy to take it. But In my head, I was like, awesome. This is where God wants me. This is my mission field. And so it was awesome that I was with all these atheists and agnostics, these non-Christians, who had their own preconceived ideas of Christianity from what they've seen in media. He would ask me questions. All sorts of questions about Jesus, about Christianity, about sin and salvation. One of my workmates said to me that those who do good things to get into heaven aren't good people. They're motivated by self-interest. They're in it for the reward or to avoid hell. Either way, they're not good people. He said, on the other hand, someone who doesn't believe in heaven or hell or non-Christian ideas of universal justice like karma or what goes around, comes around, anyone who doesn't believe in those things and does good anyway is a much better person because they don't have the expectation of reward. They're being good for goodness sake or for the good of another person rather than themselves. But people who do good get into heaven aren't good. I said to him, it's a good thing people don't get into heaven by being good. (laughs) No one is good enough, Christian or not. Instead, we believe in Jesus and we are saved, and then we are free to do good, to love God and love others imperfectly and fearlessly. And there are a whole bunch of reasons to do good. To obey Jesus by loving God and loving others, and the Holy Spirit gets involved, and we become more and more like Jesus, and God is glorified, and we get to be instruments of God's grace to others. And by loving what God's love, we don't get so distracted by the world that we turn away from Jesus, and all that. Goodness is woven into the fabric of true, Jesus-loving, life-saving Christianity. But it's not our goodness that saves us. Thank God. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and may I grow in righteousness, because you are good." Another workmate overheard this conversation and said, so, a bad person can be saved right before they die, and they'll get to go to heaven? Yep. All right. So I can just live life how I want to now and then give my life to Jesus later when I'm old so I can get into heaven? I said, look, you're probably technically right. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't know if you'll die before then. Well, that's true, I don't think that was actually a very good answer. Yes, we don't know when we'll die, We don't know when it will be too late for us to pivot and say, Jesus, save me, I'm yours. It's unwise to plan to be saved later. But also, I think God's mercy doesn't work as a backup plan. I think that kind of plan is actually impossible to execute. See, over and over today, I've said the same words, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But it's not these words that save us. The tax collector isn't showing us salvation's open sesame the password to unlock God's mercy and forgiveness. But he's showing us the heart of someone who receives God's mercy, someone who humbles himself, sees his need for God's mercy and submits himself to it. What we see in the tax collector is a humble heart, a heart that sees he is unworthy of the presence of God, that knows he needs to be saved from divine justice at the conclusion of his life one that submits itself to the mercy of the one and only good creator, God. Verse 14 of our text says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so if God's mercy is our backup, we're not humbling ourselves before God. We're not seeing his worth, and we're not submitting ourselves to his mercy. We're clinging instead to the things that we love more than him. With God as our backup, we fail to see the seriousness of sin. We fail to see the incredible distance we put between ourselves and God by our own unrighteousness. We fail to value the merciful hand of God reaching over that distance It's no use to offer empty words up to God. We have a great need for mercy. We must see it, and then we can say with our hearts, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. All right. From the heart, let's do this. We can summon the sincerity, maybe beat our chests and stir up the right feelings. Oh boy, have I sinned or what? <laughs> Lots of sinning in my heart. In my actions. I really feel bad. About all that sinning that I've been doing. Please have mercy on me. Please, or oh please, oh please. Have I dwelt on my sin long enough? Is my conviction real enough? Have I earned my forgiveness by being sorry enough? Have you ever felt like that? Like you need to save yourself and again, sorry, again and again by being sufficiently sorry for your sin? I know I have. I wouldn't normally put it into those words save myself? No. Earn my forgiveness? Of course not. But am i sorry enough am i feeling the weight of my sin i think this is a pattern many christians are familiar with everything is hunky-dory and then we slip up we hurt a relationship we break a commitment to someone someone points out that we haven't been reading our bible very much lately oh no i've done it I've done it again and now i must repent But how can I keep going to God to repent of the same thing over and over? How can I expect forgiveness? Surely each time I need to carry a little more guilt, feel a little more sorry, and hopefully he'll pity me enough to forgive me just one more time. Then I can continue in righteousness, my own righteousness. No. So then I am trying to earn my own forgiveness. By heaping shame upon myself, I'm trying to pay penance, a self inflicted punishment, a self flagellation of the heart. Do you know what I mean by self flagellation? Whipping oneself on the back over and over, inflicting pain on yourself. This has been a common practice throughout history. Not common in our culture, I think. It's not a good thing. It could be to distract ourselves from our sinful desires or to try and share in Christ's suffering as if we can shoulder some of that. Demonstrate our devotion. God requires none of this. Just don't do it. Brennan Manning wrote of his experience with self-flagellation in the book, Abba's Child, saying that he flailed away with such reckless abandon that he raised blood blisters on his back. Truth to tell, he writes, I was trying desperately to make myself pleasing to God. When he caught a glimpse of a brother faking his self-flagellation in the next cell, Manning writes, I pitied the poor wretch and returned to my cell with an insufferable sense of spiritual superiority insufferable spiritual superiority when we try to afflict ourselves with the weight of our own sin the expectation that we can lift ourselves out of it and be righteous before God we're doing what the Pharisee was doing we're failing to see how great our distance actually is from God. And then carry on in our righteousness. When we heap shame upon ourselves for each sin we're conscious of, it can be for this kind of sense of spiritual superiority. A bit of a tongue twister. Or it might be striving to keep up with others who we perceive as far more righteous than ourselves. They must be in much better standing before God. But the example of the Pharisee in this parable is a warning for those who would see themselves as more righteous than others and a comfort for those who would see others as more righteous than themselves. Take heart, we're all on equal footing. Just humbly receive God's mercy like the tax collector. Now, don't get me wrong, it is right to dislike our sin to even hate it. When we see our sin, we should confess it to God, turn away from it. As Christians, we can do this with confident assurance that our sins are actually already paid for, once and for all, by the blood of Jesus. We have been justified, not by anything we've done. So rejoice. Rejoice. And rejoice in the knowledge that God is not reluctant to forgive us. God, who sent his son to die for our sins, is not reluctant to forgive us. Romans 5 8 says, But God shows his mercy, sorry, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God is not reluctant to forgive. We can rejoice in the assurance of our salvation even as we humbly acknowledge our need for God's continual mercy. So, let's go big picture. Here's what the Christian journey looks like. Justification, sanctification, glorification. I didn't come up with this. Yes, we see it in the Bible. Not not grouped together in this way, but we see that pattern in the Bible in the New Testament. And others much smarter than I am and much older than I am have pointed out this pattern. Justification, sanctification and glorification. From the moment we put our faith in Jesus, we are justified in the eyes of God. From then on, we're seen as righteous, welcomed into God's mercy. No need for penance, no need to bring anything of our own. We're all set from here on out. If you're a Christian, justification is behind you and you continue to be justified you're non-Christian, I hope justification is ahead of you, that you'll put your faith in Jesus and be justified once and for all. Then once we're justified for the rest of our lives, we're being sanctified by God. God is chipping away at our sin, making us more righteous. We're maturing in Christ, loving what God loves and glorifying Him more and more in much of what we do, but we are still sinners. And we, as we grow in righteousness, we mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that we're earning God's mercy. That we can put it behind us once we're good enough. We should continue to trust that we've already been justified by the blood of Jesus. And our own righteousness cannot replace that. And then finally, either when we die, or perhaps Jesus will come before, before that, I don't know, we'll be made sinless and brought into eternal rest with God. That's our glorification. It's our final state of sinlessness. If you see your need for God's mercy and you believe in Jesus for your justification, you are a Christian. You are already justified. Once and for all by the blood of Jesus. So as we bring this to a close, let's talk about how we have it way better than the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus gave this parable before his own death and resurrection. Before he paid the price for all of our sins. And so again, Jesus is clarifying the Old Testament. That we sin far more than we realize. But God's mercy is also immeasurable. If we read the Old Testament, we can see the weight of our sin throughout, and we can see God's great mercy to Israel, to King David, to Nineveh, to every individual whose sins were forgiven. God's character is consistent throughout all of history, that he is both just and merciful. God had entered a covenant with the people of Israel that he'd protect them and bless them and they'd keep his laws. And because they'd keep his laws imperfectly, even at the best of times, God had a system for them to have their sins paid for. This old covenant included rules for animal sacrifice so one's sins can be forgiven. The idea was that someone has to take the punishment for sin and this animal is going to do it. As the Pharisee and tax collector enter the temple, they are in this covenant with God. And we know God is merciful and that God weighs the heart and the tax collector is humble and repentant and so he can go home justified. His sin perhaps paid for by an animal sacrifice. The Pharisee, being proud and self-righteous, is not free from his sin. Sacrifice or not. But a new covenant had been prophesied, the covenant made in Jesus' blood. Jesus replaced the animal sacrifice once and for all. We read in Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus taking away our sin for good and paying for it all, past, present and future. A little later on in Hebrews 10, 12 to 14, we read, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's perfected for all time by a single offering, those who are being sanctified. Those who have put their faith in Jesus. This single offering was Jesus suffering death on the cross. The sinless one, the son of God, taking a punishment he didn't deserve, paying a price for all of us. And now that he has died, For our sins we have this assurance that we don't need to go up to the temple we don't need to sacrifice animals in the right way at the right times that is all done this is why the Christian is justified once and for all because Jesus died for our sins and so we are freed from the burden of salvation by our own righteousness we are freed from the fear of our own sin We are freed to grow in righteousness with God's help. It's not on me to save myself, not by my goodness, not by my guilt. God gives his mercy generously and freely. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let's approach the throne of grace with confidence. Seeing our need for God's constant mercy, believing that it was won for us by Jesus on the cross, and rejoicing continually in the knowledge that as surely as Jesus himself died on that cross, we are justified before God. As surely as Jesus himself died on that cross, we are justified before God. This is assurance for the Christian Christian and an open invitation for the non-Christian. Because even the best of us need God's mercy, and even the worst of us can have it, thanks to Jesus. Let's pray, and then Mark will lead us in communion. God.